this morning while we remember Christ's death and resurrection. We also grieve the anti-Asian violence sweeping our nation. Just this past Monday, a 65-year-old woman was brutally attacked in broad daylight in midtown Manhattan, and no one intervened. This comes shortly after the massacre in Atlanta that targeted Asian American women and thousands of other attacks against Asians and Asian Americans throughout our country over the past year. Our country desperately needs the, the hope, the healing, the reconciliation that is only available through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This Easter, I pray that God's people throughout our country will stand up and, and speak out against anti-Asian racism in all of its forms. And that we as God's people will reach out in love to all those who are hurting and broken around us. This morning, if you're struggling with, with deep pain, with depression, I ask you to reach out to us at this church. We're here to listen to you. We're here to pray with you. We're here, here to share with you how Jesus Christ is present to us, especially in our times of darkness, pain, and suffering. Because he died on the cross in tremendous pain and suffering. He gives us hope. He gives us healing in our times of darkness. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's not a myth. It's not a metaphor. It really happened. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came to earth. He took on human flesh. He became one of us. He became fully human without stopping being God. He was fully God, fully human. He lived among us. He taught us the truth of God. And then he died on the cross bearing the sin. That sin is the Bible's word for all that we do that is wrong, that, that breaks our relationship with God. He took all of that sin upon himself and he died in our place so that we can be forgiven and cleansed so that we don't have to experience the death that our sin deserves, the spiritual death that all sin leads to. Then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and he now reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And someday he will return and reign gloriously upon this earth. Today I pray that God would give us a gift, that God would give us the gift of being able to shift our focus away from an earthbound perspective and that we could focus on eternity, that we could catch a vision this morning of eternity. Over the past year, all of us have been forced to reflect more deeply on the meaning of life. The pandemic has caused massive dis disruptions across the globe. Most of us have spent large parts of the past year living at home, socially isolating. And this has caused us to consider in fresh ways how we want to live, what we want to value more than all else in this life. 
With the rollout of vaccines, a new optimism has begun to spread, a hope that our world will eventually begin to return to normal. This seems to me to be an optimism based on what people miss, what they long to experience, what they think will be possible for them to do and, and, and to, to experience when only this pandemic is finally behind us. And while this is totally normal and natural, this very much is an earthbound optimism, an earthbound hope. Today we're going to see that God offers us a greater hope. God offers us today an eternal hope. During my trips to India, one of my favorite discoveries were the sidewalk booksellers. You see, each morning, the booksellers in the major cities set up their, their book stands on the sidewalk and, and so that those passing by can look at these stacks of books covering a wide range of, of subjects. And when you find a book you like, you can buy that book, take it home and read it. And then when you're done with it, you can bring the book back and resell it to the bookseller for, for less than you paid for it. In this way, the booksellers make money and all these books circulate throughout millions of people. It's, it's like a library of the streets. And everyone who checks out a book takes such careful care of the book that they buy. And, and they, they treat this precious book so well because they're looking ahead to that day where they'll sell it back to the bookseller, make a little money back, find a new book, buy that book, and on and on it goes. Well, at one of these book stands in India, I found a book called Third Class Ticket by Heather Wood. It's a true story about very poor villagers who lived in India, who never left their area. And then one day, the, the nearby landowner died, and, and the villagers heard that this, this landowner stipulated that her wealth would be used for something very, very unusual. You see, she decided, this landowner, that when she died, all of her wealth would go to finance the poor villagers so that they could take a trip across all of India and see their entire country, which none of them had ever before seen. And there's one moment in their journey that I'd like to focus on today that speaks about a change in perspective that, that they, they struggle to make, that I think teaches us about this massive shift in our perspective that God's calling us to make, a shift from looking at life in an earthbound way to looking at life in an eternal way. At one point along their journey, I can't remember if they stopped at a government building or a schoolhouse far away, but on one of their stops in the building, there was a map of India, something that none of the villagers had ever seen. In fact, none of them had ever seen a map before. They had, and then they had no idea what they're looking at. What is this thing, this strange shape? Now, now, maps have become such a normal part of our lives that we can hardly imagine how strange it would be 
for someone to see one of these things for the very first time. After all, what, what a strange concept. You take a country that's millions of square miles large, and then you reduce it to a tiny piece of paper so you can look at the whole thing at once. It's a very strange idea. And so these villagers have no idea what they're looking at. Finally, one of, one of the people in the village say, you know, I, th I, I think I know what it is. I think we're looking at a Hindu god that we've never heard of before. This suggestion made sense to the other villagers, and then they moved on. They were not able to make this shift, to change their perspective, to, to understand that, that they were looking at something that represented reality. They, they were looking at, at a piece of paper that gave them this, this shift in perspective that helped them see what their country looks like from a distance and at a scale that they will never directly witness with their own eyes. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is calling us to make a shift in our thinking that's as dramatic, even more dramatic than this. Paul is calling us to live a life that's shaped by and guided by an eternal perspective. This transition from living according to earthbound hopes to living according to eternal hope will reorient how we view our own lives. What I mean is this, we'll need to shift from viewing our lives as earthbound and limited to the few years that we walk this earth to viewing our own lives as eternal. Paul addresses this shift because some of the believers in Corinth, like many believers today, were allowing their society's view of life and their culture's earth-bound, limited hope to shape their faith rather than allowing their faith in Jesus Christ to shift and, and to change everything else in their lives. In 1 Corinthians 15.12, Paul writes, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The church in Corinth, which Paul writes in this letter, is located in Greece. And one of the core beliefs in Greek culture, and what almost every Greek person believed, is that resurrection from the dead is totally impossible. Greeks believed in the immortality of the human soul, which is the claim that after they die, a part of them, their soul, would continue living in the afterlife. But this would be a, a, a post-death experience in which who they are is torn apart. They're only part of a person. They're not a body and soul. They're only a soul. Resurrection is impossible. In fact, the Greek philosophers thought it was logically impossible for a dead body to ever come back to life. There's no way this could ever, ever happen. And this rejection of resurrection, 
was so deep in Greek culture that it seems to be the case that in Corinth, in this region of Greece, there were some people who placed their faith in Jesus and they were trying to follow Jesus, but they were also struggling to shift from this earthbound perspective of their own society to an eternal perspective. And so they struggled to believe that the dead could be raised back to life. Although the core cultural views about life are very, and, and death are very different in our own society, we also are often lulled into living according to an earthbound perspective on life rather than the eternal perspective that God calls us to have. And to illustrate this point, we can think, I want you to think about what your favorite book of the Bible is right now. What's your favorite book of the Bible? Because when I ask believers here in the U.S. to tell me, what's your favorite book of the Bible? They'll often tell me something like the book of Psalms or the book of Isaiah or the book of Philippians, a, a book that, that provides encouragement for today, for our life on earth right now. And, and that's good to an extent. But when you ask a Palestinian Christian who has suffered tremendously what their book of the Bible is, guess what they almost always say? The book of Revelation. That's an answer that I've never heard in the West. When I asked you what your favorite book of the Bible, did anyone think the book of Revelation? Raise your hand. No one. The reason that believers in contexts of tremendous suffering love the book of Revelation is because it provides a glimpse of eternity. It speaks about the day when Jesus Christ will someday return to the earth, when he will judge those who are unjust and violent and wicked, and when he will deliver his faithful followers who trust in him. Believers in contexts of deep suffering look ahead at eternity with hope. And I think that sometimes here in the U.S., we're just too wealthy. We're just too comfortable. And so we become so focused on this life alone. We, we become lulled by, by the dominant view of our society, which tells us that this life is all you've got. This life is all there is. And so even if we, we think we don't believe that, we live as though that's true. We live as though our entire lives on earth, our entire relationship with God is only about this time on earth when in reality, it's about so much more. Paul then explains in 1 Corinthians 15 that an eternal perspective is embedded at the very center of our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul makes this point by inviting his readers to imagine a counterfactual reality. He invites them to imagine that there is no resurrection, even when there is. He invites them, just imagine, thought experience, imagine that there is no resurrection, and then think about what that would mean 
for your faith, for your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes this, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here Paul is arguing that, that everything about the Christian faith, everything about our relationship with God hinges upon whether or not Jesus Christ actually, literally, physically rose from the dead. And if he did not, then there is no future for us beyond our time on earth. Paul writes, if ancient Greek culture is correct, that no one dead can come back to life. If our Western scientific culture is correct, that a dead body can't come back to, to life again. Then he says, his preaching and the faith of the believers are futile. Why? Because Jesus Christ's resurrection is central to his victory over sin and death. Jesus' death and resurrection are two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate them. They, they, it's a total package. You take it all or you reject it all. Having only Jesus' death, if, if Jesus only rose from the, if Jesus only died but did not rise from the dead, he'd die like any other good man. He'd be no different. And so having Jesus' death without his resurrection would be an incomplete victory. It's through his death and resurrection that Jesus Christ destroys death and opens the door for us to enter the eternal life of God. For this reason, Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Furthermore, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then those who have already died have no future. They're lost, Paul says. They're lost. At this point, Paul then raises the stakes even further because he then argues that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's not just the future beyond our physical death that's affected. Our life here on earth is also rendered completely meaningless, insignificant, pointless. He says, if only, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why would Paul make such a radical claim? After all, aren't there many secular humanists who would argue that 
Jesus said many nice things that can help us be better people, even if he never rose from the dead. The only way to fully understand Paul's argument is to shift our perspective from an earthbound, limited perspective to an eternal perspective. The eternal perspective that, that we gain from Scripture. When we do this, we see that our earthly journeys of following Jesus Christ are part of a larger narrative. Our lives are part of a larger journey, a larger trajectory. And if you subtract eternity from that equation, then our earthly lives ultimately don't make sense. They will remain unfulfilled, partial, incomplete, and meaningless. In other words, resurrection and eternal hope and everlasting life are hardwired into the very core of Jesus' message. If you look to Jesus Christ as Lord, then you're committing yourself to, to this shift we're talking about today. You're committing yourself to shifting from this earthbound, limited perspective, and you're committing to living according to an eternal perspective. You're choosing to live in the light of eternity. Paul then transitions from this thought experiment of imagining that there is no resurrection to proclaiming that Jesus Christ, indeed, in the flesh, rose from the dead on Easter. And that because of this, and because of this alone, we have eternal hope, he says. But Christ has, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This means that Christ's resurrection from the dead is not just for himself alone. It's also for us. Jesus Christ's resurrection from the, the dead happened so that we could have eternal hope. Think about this for just a moment. This means that, that the story of our lives is much, much bigger than just our time on earth. It means that the time we walk this earth, if we're lucky 70, 80, 90 years, the time we walk this earth is just a small, limited part of our entire life. It's just a snapshot of a much, much larger story. The story of eternity. And this is why true followers of Jesus Christ throughout all of history, have never made the highest goal of their lives their own self-actualization, their own achievement, their own accomplishment, their own pleasure. No. This is the reason why when we understand the actual eternal character of our lives, Jesus' resurrection sets us free to serve, to give to others 
to help others, to, to pour out our lives for the sake of the gospel because we know that something so much better is waiting for us after this life. One of the things that Jesus told his disciples right before he was executed is that this world is not our home. In John, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. After Jesus died and rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and he now rules from the right hand of the Father. And right now he's preparing a place for us. He's preparing our truest home. A home that will be so much more like home for us than any other place we've ever lived here on this earth. Jesus is preparing that home for us, this eternal future with God. This is not only our truest home, but this is what we were created for. God designed us and created us so that we can enter into this eternal life with God. And I think that this brings us back to the longings that we've all been experiencing during this pandemic for life that is full and joyful and free. What we're really longing for, if we're honest with ourselves, if, if we're really getting in touch with the depth of our longings, is not simply for life to return to normal. We need to recognize that we have these longings, and then we have a longing beneath the longing. It's like my longing to travel again. Sure, I, I long for the excitement and the joy of getting on an airplane again and, and flying away on a trip. That's exciting. That's fun. I miss that. But, but the longing beneath that longing is my desire to visit my relatives who live in a different part of the country, who I haven't seen now for about a year and a half. We have this longing beneath the, the longing what we desire at the core of our pandemic longings, the longing beneath the longing is for life as it was meant to be lived. We long to experience the eternal life of God for which we have been created. What we call the normal life of in-person interactions, concerts, classrooms, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is you miss. This, this longing for normal life, it actually taps into this deeper longing beneath the longing for joy and fullness and peace and wholeness that we can only experience when we come to know Jesus Christ and when we enter the eternal life of God. The sense that something's missing from our lives right now can wake us up to the fact that this missing piece will always be missing 
until we enter into this eternal life for which we were made, the eternal life of God through Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis argues that we have such trouble shifting from our earthbound perspective to an eternal perspective because our imaginations are far too small. He writes this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. My fear for the coming months is that, is that we and the people around us will lose, will lose this, this longing that we all have for life to be different. And that we'll miss the fact that there's a longing beneath this longing that's so much deeper and that's pointing us to something so much greater than what we call normal life. This longing beneath the longing points us to infinite joy, the eternal life of God. Revelation 21 gives us a vision of this eternal life that God offers us. It says this, the Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice, a loud voice, from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Today, if you long 
for the fullness of life for which you've been created. Today, if you know that underneath all your longings for normal life, there's a longing beneath the longing for infinite joy, for eternal life, then know this, that it is offered freely to you today. Our society is proclaiming vaccines and herd immunity as as the path to normal life. But the path to eternal life is very different from that. In John 14, after Jesus tells his disciples how he's preparing a place for them and how he'll come back and bring them to the Father's house, Jesus then tells them, uh, I'm sorry, one of the disciples then says, Jesus, we don't know the way. How do we get to this place? How do we find this, this home, our truest home in the house of the Father? And Jesus then says this, and by saying this, he tells them the path to infinite joy. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he opens the way for us to, to move from our broken, limited, unfulfilled lives that normal life will never satisfy into the eternal life, the infinite joy of God. And all that he asks is that we place our faith and trust in him, that we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we believe he is God's son who God sent to earth, that, that we confess to him all the sins we've done, all that we've done to break our relationship with him that we then turn from our broken lives and we turn to him and we say, Jesus, I need you. Come into my life. Fill me with yourself. I, I choose to follow you all the days of my life. And in just a moment, we will baptize two people who've made this choice. And when we do this, when we give our lives to Jesus and when he fills our lives with himself, he then begins to to just saturate every corner of our lives. And he begins to address and to meet that longing beneath the longings, that deepest longing for infinite joy, our longing for eternal life, which God gives to all who trust in him. In closing, I'd like to share how C.S. Lewis imagines what it will be like when we leave this earthly journey and when we fully enter into the eternal life of God. In the very last book and in the, of the Chronicles of Narnia, in the very last scene of, of that book, all the main characters have died and are now in heaven, a place that is so vividly real that it makes all their previous life on earth seem dull and gray and boring. Heaven is as different from earth, Lewis writes, as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. From the perspective of the fullness and the brilliance of infinite joy and eternal life, when we look back on our previous lives, our lives on earth will look like shadow lands, Lewis tells us. In this final scene, the main characters don't quite know exactly what has happened to them yet. And so Aslan, the great lion, 
who in these books represents Jesus, explains to them what has happened and where they are now. There was a real railway accident, Aslan said softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray together. Jesus, this morning, we're longing for eternity. We're longing for the infinite joy that only you can bring. And I pray for those, God, who understand this morning that there's this missing piece, that all their longings for normal life will never address the depth of their true longing. I pray for them. I pray, Jesus, that you'd reveal yourself to them. Give them the gift of faith so that they can trust you, so that they can surrender their lives to you and invite you to be for them their Lord and their Savior. Fill us today with your infinite joy, with your eternal hope. We pray this in your name. Amen.